0: to add it at the end. So the other night uh, in Joseph's, in his last talk, he he spoke about uh, a description or a framework one way of understanding how our path of practice unfolds in terms of what he he called sudden awakening gradual cultivation this framework that come comes specifically from shanul uh, the teacher shanul and as he said you know at times we may experience this these moments of sudden realization where we we do connect directly with the pure, empty, aware nature of the mind, of the heart, this, you could say, this essential primordial nature of mind that's already aware, it's already aware and already free because it never was any other way. And so there's nothing whatsoever to do about it in that regard. And he also read that lovely little quotation from Suzuki Roshi. He said, Everything is perfect and there's room for improvement. And the force of habit and conditioning in, in the mind is very powerful. And maybe, as Joseph suggested, it's lifetimes old. Sometimes it certainly feels that way. You know, we see this operating in our lives. At times we find ourselves repeating some old habitual pattern that we've seen it over and over again. We watch ourselves doing it anyway, even though on some level we know better. But we get hooked, we get caught once again, pulled in by this force of habit. I was talking to a friend recently who said, well, why is it that way, you know? If the mind is already free, Why did God make it so we get hooked? It's one of those imponderables, I think. The Buddha would say you can't answer that except to say that that's the way it is. And so that's what we have to work with. But luckily there are some powerful mental factors which naturally arise in our practice and come to our aid. And these factors not only support this this sense of gradual cultivation, which we seem to have to do at least some of the time. But they actually have this quality of directly inclining the mind towards freedom, towards enlightenment. That's their function. This is from the Buddha. He said, Bhikkhus, I do not see even one other thing that, when developed and cultivated, leads to the abandoning, abandoning of the fetters so effectively as this. The seven factors of enlightenment. What seven? The enlightenment factor of mindfulness, the enlightenment factor of investigation, of energy, the enlightenment factor of rapture, of calm, of concentration, and the enlightenment factor of equanimity." Now that's a strong statement, not one other thing so effective. So it's worth revisiting these, looking at these powerful, helpful powers in our mind. You know This isn't new to any of us, but it's worth looking at them again, get back to the basics in a way. So these are the bojangas in Pali. Bojanga, I like the sound of bojanga. And in the simplest terms, you could say the function of the bojangas is to dispel the kilesas, these afflictive emotions of heart and mind, afflictive mind states, that are born of these three unwholesome roots of greed and hatred and delusion. And so the bojangas are healthy, wholesome, really ultimately very helpful mental factors, and they arise when the conditions arise, when the conditions are right. And they have the effect of weakening and even at times removing these afflictive states that cloud and hinder the mind and obscure the mind's true nature. And sometimes, you know, when we're on retreat or or just in our lives, sometimes we look into our minds and it and our hearts and it seems like that all we see are various manifestations of these afflictive emotions, of the hindrances, these roots of suffering in our lives. Sometimes they seem to be there in great quantity. So it's good to remind ourselves of these noble, beautiful qualities that are available to us. And maybe even more important to remind ourselves of the fact that they function very directly in leading us to wisdom and to liberation. So the word in Pali, bojanga, has two roots. It's combined from two two roots, bodhi, meaning awakening or enlightenment, and anga, which is a causative factor or a limb. So you could say a bojanga then is a cause for enlightenment. This again is from the Buddha. Just as all the rafters of a peaked house slant, slope, and incline toward the roof peak, so too, when a bhikkhu develops and cultivates the seven factors of enlightenment, he slants, slopes, and inclines towards nibbana. So, this is a hopeful statement. You know, we just slant and slope right towards awakening through cultivating these. I could say we're sliding towards liberation. So there's great optimism in this, in the path in this way. And so these kilesas, the fetters, sometimes called the defilements, some people don't like that word. So I am, I'm not using it much. But these have the, quote, have the function of, of obscuring the mind's pure empty nature. They bind the heart. And they arise due to causes and conditions. They're not inherent in the mind stream. They arise because of certain causes and conditions. And they're sustained by certain nutriments. The main nutriment, the main thing that feeds them is unwise attention, or careless attention, you could say. And so in this way, you could say that they require a certain kind of internal environment in order to arise and in order to flourish. And in the same way, the factors of enlightenment arise due to causes and conditions, and they're sustained by the nutriment of wise or careful attention. And so they require their own kind of internal environment to arise and then to flourish. You know, we could see, we could think of this in the same way as things happen in nature. You know, over along the path that goes to the retreat center, a little ways into the woods, there's a big batch of these beautiful lady slipper flowers. They're a kind of native New England, North American orchid. I guess they're more widespread than just New England, but they're very rare. We have a huge batch of them here. It's spreading every year. They're protected, and they're a rare flower. And they wouldn't survive if we decided, oh, we want to have a big patch of them in the, in the courtyard out here, in the sunny courtyard. They wouldn't make it there. They like to be under pine trees or firs. They, they like that acid soil, and, and they like it shady. And so they, wouldn't, they would sicken and die. They wouldn't do well if we brought them to the courtyard or out into the meadow. And in the same way, if we decided we'd like to have a, a patch of lupin, growing in there along the path and we dug them out from the, the meadow out here and moved them, they wouldn't flourish there. They, would, they wouldn't survive if we put them in the shady environment where the lady slippers are happy. So in the same way, you could say that the, the kilesas and the factors of enlightenment each have their specific climate and environment that they need in order to flourish in the mind and the heart and specific re- nutriments. And so in either case, if we change these conditions or remove what it is that sustains them, then they, they won't survive. They can't continue. And so the key condition that allows the factors of enlightenment to flourish and grow, I could say the key one is the light of mindfulness. And they require it in the same way that, that plants need sunlight. And in the same way, the Kilesas can't survive in this light of awareness. They need darkness. They need unawareness. That's how they survive. So mindfulness is the first of these seven factors. And in a way, it's in its own category. It has the function of gathering together the others and balancing them, both gathering them and balancing them. And of the, of the seven factors, it's said that sati, mindfulness, is the only one that you can't have too much of it. You cannot have an excess of mindfulness. So bear that in mind <laughs> in case you think you're too mindful. Not possible. You can try too hard, but you can't be too mindful. So the English translations for these seven factors, in some ways, they don't capture some of the nuance of their specific meanings in Pali. Uh, In a way, they're they're approximations. And sometimes they aren't that good. I'll go through the list. So sati, mindfulness, or mindful awareness. Dhamma-vicaya is usually translated as investigation of dhammas virya, virya, energy or effort, sometimes courage or courageous energy, piti, is rapture or joyful interest, Pasadi calm, tranquility, samadhi, concentration, and upekha, equanimity. I was, I was recently, recently <clears throat> I listened to a talk by a friend and she was saying these lists in, in the Theravada tradition in the Pali texts is, she said, they're kind of like field guides, you know, and we have all these lists. We have the three refuges and the four foundations of mindfulness and the five aggregates and the six sense bases and the seven factors and the eightfold path and the, the nine something. Somewhere there's a list of the lists. And it says that it's, it's like the Buddha is a, as a researcher who's gone and done all this field work for us and, and has come back with this useful field guide with the lists and the suttas and the teachings. I know not. field guides aren't everybody's cup of tea. I'm a, I'm a bit of a, an amateur bird watcher. I love birds, and I like to identify them and learn about their habits and learn their songs, things like that, so I like some field guides. I was on a pilgrimage in India, I guess now it's five years, five and six years ago with uh, a monk. Some of you might know Ajahn Amaro. He's a teacher about to assume the abbotship at Amaravati Monastery. And and Eric, who's here, the manager, he and I shared the the year as attendance to Ajahn Amaro on a year-long pilgrimage to India. And and I I bought a field guide of the birds as one of my rewards for my service. I bought myself a field guide and I had binoculars. So when I had a chance I'd go out and do some bird watching and I decided to keep a list. And I actually got up to around two hundred birds that I different birds that I saw. So I'd come back, you know, they'd be back where we were staying, and I'd come in excited about having seen some really cool bird like the blue-bearded bee-eater, which I did see. And I wouldn't get exactly a blank stare from them, but <laughs> but it was close, you know, and I could see they were trying to have some mudita for me, <laughs> but uh, it didn't come that easily. <laughs> Although I could never see how you couldn't be excited about a blue-bearded bee-eater, which is a particularly cool bird, but anyway, No matter how we feel about field guides, we've all reaped this incredible benefit of the Buddha's uh, incredible gift that he was able to put his understanding into these relatively simple and easy-to-understand teachings. You know, they're pretty straightforward for the most part. And in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is probably the most comprehensive teaching in terms of meditation instructions that one finds in the texts, the Buddha's instructions for the working with the seven factors of awakening are really simple and and great. This is what he says in the Satipatthana Sutta. And how does one dwell contemplating phenomena in phenomena in terms of the seven factors of enlightenment? Here, when the mindfulness factor of enlightenment is present, One understands there is the mindfulness enlightenment factor in me. Or when there is no mindfulness enlightenment factor present, one understands there is no mindfulness enlightenment factor in me. And one also understands how the unarisen mindfulness enlightenment factor arises and how the arisen mindfulness enlightenment factor comes to fulfillment by development. And he goes on in this way for the other six. So basically, this is just telling us that we need to notice when they're there, detect them when they're there, and know when they're not there, see what makes them arise, and then see what develops them. So our job really is to be mindful, to pay attention, to see what's going on. Not to try to control or manipulate things so much as just to see Are these things present? Are they not present? What would make them arise? So we're not trying to get something so much as simply see what's happening and begin to know what's going on very directly, very intimately. And these seven factors, they often manifest in a way that's more subtle, than the kilesas, than these afflictive emotions and mind states. Often these factors are obscured by storms of the kilesas that sometimes rage in our hearts and minds. And so we need to learn how to recognize them. We need to really touch them directly, get really close and familiar with them through our direct experience, not through thinking about them or some kind of intellectual exercise, but touching them very directly in our moment-to-moment experience as our life unfolds. So I'm going to try to get through each of them in brief, which may be a tall task. You could give a an entire talk on each of these factors and. Joseph has done this in his series on the Satipatthana Sutta, which is a wonderful resource. highly recommend it. So I'm going to do a cursory overview of them. So Sati, mindfulness, I've already said quite a bit about it. It's this factor that has the most to do with determining the quality of our internal environment, you could say. And it does have this wonderful function of gathering together and balancing the other six factors. They really follow in the wake of mindfulness. So in a way, it's the key and all wholesome things flourish when mindfulness is present. Mindfulness allows us to connect directly with our experience free of concepts about experience. And it really opens the door to the entire path. In the Dhammapada, the Buddha said, mindfulness is the pathway to the deathless. So it's the key that opens the door to the path. It has a few characteristics that I'll mention. Beyond that, the word sati in Pali is related to a verb, sarati, which means to remember. And so one of its functions is remembering to be present this quality of remembering to be here, remembering to pay attention. And there's a quality of relaxed receptivity that also goes along with this, this function in terms of remembering. It's like when we try to remember something that we're, we're trying to bring to mind to recall, and we, we really try to remember it, we can't get it to come. But if we put it aside, we let it go for a little while and relax, then it often just springs forth on its own. It's another way that memory has this function of relaxed receptivity. This is true for mindfulness. And it also has a quality of non-superficiality. One image that I read was described mindfulness uh, comparing the difference between if we toss a cork and a stone into a stream of moving water. If we do this, a cork floats and bobs on the surface and it flows along with the stream. But a stone sinks to the depths, sinks right to the bottom immediately. So mindfulness is compared with this stone that sinks below the surface of things, this non-superficial quality. Mindfulness also has qualities of impartiality and non-interfering. It has no agenda to change experience. It's uninvolved, it's detached, but not in a cold or distant way or aloof way. Actually, the the opposite is true with mindfulness. Mindfulness rubs right up against experience, up against the objects of experience, but it's non-reactive. It allows our experience to be just the way it is, So the remaining six factors are grouped into two categories. There are three that are energizing, uplifting category, an energizing, uplifting factors, and three that are calming, tranquilizing, have the function of collecting and settling the mind. And the way they function is when they're balanced. It's how they function best. And so when we have this balance of energizing and calming factors, then liberation can arise out of this balance when it's cultivated and developed to its best point, its highest point. And so in this way, we're not too high. If the energizing factors are too, too strong, we can be too high. We can get into states of euphoria or overly energetic states, overly excited. On the one hand, or if there's too much calm, too much of the calming factors, then we get, can get too cooled out and we can sink into dullness, into a fog or into a stupor. And so if we're off balance either way, it's hard to connect with reality in the moment, hard to connect with the truth of things as they really are. But when these things are balanced, then our minds and hearts are open and receptive. And there's a kind of strength that comes from this balance. And we're able to open to experience without going to extremes of excitation or dullness. So the energizing factors are dhamma this factor of investigation, virya, energy, and piti, rapture or joy, joyful interest. So I'll start with investigation. So sometimes calling it investigation is problematic because this can have the connotation for us of of being a kind of analysis or something that we, a way that we think about things. But it's a kind of intuitive investigation. It's a way of discerning things directly discerning characteristics of phenomena, of things, of our life. It's described in one way, it's described, it's as though if we were in a dark room and were given a flashlight, and we could use the flashlight and begin to see, see the things in the room by shining the light on it. And so this factor of investigation has a quality of shining a light on experience, And so it draws our attention near to our experience. Brings us more intimacy with life. And we begin to discover some details, not in an intellectual way, but through directly connecting with it. And so with this factor of investigation, there's a a quality of, of diving, of plunging below the surface of things. And it connects us with what are called the paramatta dhammas in Pali. Usually this is translated translated as ultimate realities. But simply this means experiencing things directly free of concepts. So an example of this would be in the case of materiality, of material phenomena. All materiality is composed of these four great elements, Have this kind of alchemical sound of earth, air, fire, and water. And we see this in our body very directly in terms of the kinds of sensations. What we really can experience as body is earth element as hardness, qualities of texture, and fire element by temperature, heat and coolness and water by its characteristics of fluidity and cohesion, flowing and binding, and the air element manifests as movement, tension, tightness, or vibration. And so this is what we see when we turn our attention directly to the experience of the body. But investigation also reveals the universal or common characteristics that are True of all things, all things have their individual characteristics, but they all share the three common universal characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and corelessness or selflessness, anicca, dukkha, anatta. These are common to all conditioned phenomena, all of our experience. And so, when we see these deeply, when we really understand these, it's through seeing this that liberating insight arises. So investigation brings this quality of understanding these universal characteristics of things, draws us near to them. And it's interesting with investigation you know, we can see these qualities in anything, and so it doesn't matter what our experience is. You know, it brings a quality of interest. When when this quality is is present in us, there's a quality of interest, and we get we, we immerse ourselves in our experience. We become saturated with it in a sense. And it doesn't matter what it is. For example, the breath, which one doesn't think of as a really compelling, interesting subject necessarily, but it can become extremely interesting in our meditation through this quality of investigation. So the next factor is virya, effort or energy, sometimes called courageous energy, or courageous effort. And at times there is really a heroic aspect to this factor you know, walking this path isn't easy. At times it's really difficult, and so the kind of energy that we need that's required in order to stick with it and to persevere, to persevere through all of the ups and downs requires a kind of courage, and at times it requires a, a kind of heroic effort this patient, enduring kind of energy that's willing to see things through, through thick and thin, and to really stand, stand firm in the face of experience. I think of it as a kind of doggedness, you know, a stick to it where we, we know we're in it for the long haul, through all the cycles and the ups and downs. And probably the most inspiring example of this kind of courageous, heroic energy is, is the story of the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment, You know, where he's sitting there with this determination. This is what they say he said. Let only my skin, sinews, and bones remain. Let the flesh and blood in my body dry up yet there shall be no ceasing of energy until I have attained whatever can be won by human strength, human energy, and human effort. Well, he wasn't going to get up until he did what had to be done. And there's this beautiful gesture. It's on this Buddha rupa, I think. Yes this mudra of touching the earth. It's also a beautiful illustration of this quality of standing firm, where the Buddha touches the earth when he's he's assailed by the armies of Mara, trying to get him to move from his seat. And he touches the earth, asking the earth to bear witness to his right to be there, this feeling in that of not budging in the face of experience. He didn't fight and fight against the armies of Mara, and he didn't retreat from them either. He touched the earth as his witness for his right to just stay sitting there. And there's an incredible dignity and beauty and courage in this. And this is one of the aspects of this quality of virya. And we have to constantly refine and and balance this quality of energy, of effort. We have to adjust it c- continually. It's not something that we get and then it's all set and we're good to go, unfortunately. It'd be nice if we could just set it once, but it doesn't work like that. And so sometimes we make too much and we get, we get tense or there may be restlessness. Might eventually find it exhausting And at other times, our energy, our effort isn't quite enough, and we'll fall into sleepiness and dullness. And so we have to constantly be refining this, because the right effort, the right amount of energy is just enough so that we land on each moment's experience lightly, so we don't crush it by making too much energy, too much zeal. And we don't slip off or lose touch because our effort is too little or too light. So we bring this this effort, this energy to each moment arising over and over. And we can do this, we can bring our energy to each moment as it arises And we can feel that this is sustainable. It's if we decide we're going to bring effort, right effort for the whole day, it might be a bit much, but if we just do this minute, this moment, and this one over and over, meeting each moment, then that's more doable. That's sustainable. So then the third of the energizing, uplifting factors of piti, rapture, joy, joyful interest. And this has characteristics of happiness, delight, and satisfaction, which it has in and of itself. It possesses these qualities, but it has this really great ability to pervade other states with this quality of delight, of joy. So it can transform other states and make them happy and delighted, delightful, brings a sense of deep satisfaction to our experience. And sometimes we can get pretty serious, you know, we're serious about our practice and that's a good thing, but we can get overly serious. And we can lose touch at times with feelings of joy and joyful interest, so it's good to really touch this quality, this kind of spiritual joy. Because it really can refresh us. It can be very refreshing. It can lift us up when we get too serious. It's said that the characteristic of piti is endearing. I like that, endearing. That its function is is this ability to refresh the mind and the body and that its manifestation is elation, this joyful, uplifted quality. And so the rapture joy fills the body and the mind with lightness and agility. And sometimes there's very clear physical sensations that accompany this factor. Usually they're very delightful and pleasant, although they can be so strong that they, at times, that they're unpleasant. Mostly they feel really good. And it's this joy, this spiritual joy that arises from intimacy with our life, with our experience. That, and it doesn't depend on our experience being any particular way. You know, when we think of kinds of joy that we get from worldly pleasures, it's certain kinds of experiences that make us happy, bring joy. But PT doesn't depend on experience being any particular way. Sometimes it can arise when our experience is quite painful or unpleasant or difficult. So it has this ability to pervade things and to transform them, to infuse them with delight. I can remember times where, of sitting, on long retreats, where I have some very very painful sensations in the body, but there's a lot of interest and energy is good, and this PT can arise and transform these sensations and the sensations are the same but there's this way that they're not experienced as painful anymore so it's said that there are five kinds of rapture and I'll list them they're kind of nice to hear about and you can see how they different ones have have come in your Practice at times. There's minor or lesser rapture, which is kind of manifests in in the body as as chills and goosebumps and thrills. Momentary rapture, which comes as intense, strong momentary flashes, it's likened to flashes of lightning, tends to be more intense than this minor rapture, um, lesser rapture. Showering rapture that seems to break over one like a series of powerful waves. And uplifting rapture where we can feel very light. Sometimes we feel like we're floating when this is strong. When it's really strong, it's said that it can actually lift the body up into the air. Maybe late at night some of you are floating around in here. There's a really, there's a story that I I like, I think Joseph told it in one of his talks, but I like it, so I'm going to tell it again now. It's a story from the Visuddhimagga of a young woman who's living in the village of Vatakalaka near a monastery. And on one occasion in the evening, her parents were going to go to the monastery to hear the Dhamma. And um, she was, the daughter was pregnant and getting near the time of childbirth. And so they said, well, you should stay home. It's not good for you to go out. But we'll go hear the Dhamma and we'll gain merit on your behalf. And so even though she wanted to go along, she heeded their wishes. And, but she went out onto a balcony of their house and she could see from there. She could gaze into the monastery compound. The house was on a hill and she could look down and see the shrine, the Akassa Chetia shrine within the monastery grounds and and was lit by the light of the moon. It was a full moon, so it was an observance day, and the people were making offerings, and they were circling the shrine, and she could hear the sound of the chanting. And she had a thought. She said, oh, how lucky they are to be able to go to the monastery and to wander around such a shrine, and to hear the sweet preaching of the Dhamma. And then in her, mind, the, in her mind's eye, the shrine took on the form of a mound of pearls and her joy and delight were so strong that she was lifted into the air. And she came down onto the terrace of the shrine and arrived there before her parents managed to get there through walking. And so they came up and they saw her standing there and they said, well, what road did you come by? And she replied, I came through the air, not by the road. She said, I was standing gazing at the shrine in the moonlight and this strong joy arose in me with the Buddha as its object. And then I knew no more if I was standing or sitting, but only that I was rising into the air and I came to rest on the terrace of the shrine. So that's when your uplifting rapture gets really strong. And the fifth kind of rapture is called pervading rapture. It has the nature to completely fill the body and mind and it pervades every pore, every part of the body and the mind. And when it's strong, we can feel really comfortable. And usually, if we're sitting, we don't have any desire to move with pervading piti. We just want to keep sitting. So these are the three energizing factors, investigation, energy, and rapture, joy. I don't know if I'm going to get through all these. So they're the three calming factors. The first of them is pasadi. Calm or cool calmness, sometimes it's called, has this quality of coolness. comes when the mind is not heated or agitated. And its characteristic is to calm and tranquilize these agitation and unrest when they're there. It calms them. So it removes, it has this function of removing the heat of agitation. That comes when there's a lot of restlessness or worry or remorse in the mind. So it manifests as non-agitation of body and mind. And it gives us a real ability to rest in the moments, each moment's experience. Tends to make things feel more simple. Sometimes it feels like things are slowing down a bit. And there's a quality of being able to relax into the moment. And sometimes it, it is sustaining through a period and we feel this calm through a, a long period. But sometimes it comes in brief moments and there's a sense of being able to rest in the center of a storm. So calm can arise in that way where we can feel ability to rest at least briefly in the midst of very ed- energetic kinds of states. And it's said that the factor of calm invariably follows upon the rising of strong rapture, especially pervading, this pervading kind of rapture, that calm follows very directly, accompanies this, follows along and accompanies it. And so when, when it's there, when calm is strong, there's this ability to sit with comfort for long periods at times. And the second of these tranquilizing, calming factors is samadhi, concentration. It manifests, its characteristic is is non-scatteredness of mind. So when concentration is developed, when it becomes strong, there's this quality of the mind to stick with the object, to not slip off the object of attention. So it gathers and collects the mind, keeps things together, keeps our attention together, so it doesn't scatter or become dispersed, slip away. Its manifestation is this quality of stillness, of collectiveness. And there are two, two ways that it's developed, through continuous concentration on a single object, to the exclusion of all others, and through what's called momentary concentration, where we have continuity of mindfulness on changing objects, objects that are continually arising and passing away, but our our attention is continuous without gaps. And in spite of the fact, with momentary concentration, in spite of the fact that things are changing, sometimes very rapidly, there's this sense of flux. But it can be very steady, there can be continuity without breaks or gaps. So either of these kinds of concentration develop a lot of strength and unification in the mind. And they both have the ability to at least temporarily keep the defilements and the hindrances at bay. Concentration brings a sense of composure, of real stillness to the mind. We're able to give our full attention to things, to our experience, without getting pulled into it and swept away by it. And it's a great relief when samadhi begins to develop and get strong. It's a great relief from the wandering mind. We can feel settled into a kind of zone where we feel like now we're really meditating with samadhi we're not pushed and pulled by our experience and said so that concentration is the proximate cause for wisdom to arise because when the mind is collected and still in this way there's space for insight into the essential nature of things there's space for it to arise in there so the third factor Last but not, not least, the seventh or the third of the calm, calming factors is upekka, equanimity. And this is the quality of balance. Balance in the face of changing experience. So equanimity, a mind with equanimity, rests in the center of things. It's not pulled to extremes. And it allows us to be with things just as they are without falling into habits of reactivity. And if it's present and if it's steady and strong, we can notice that habitual patterns of reactivity aren't arising. Things that maybe usually bother us don't bother us in the same way. They've lost the ability to upset us or to carry us off. But this quality of equanimity, it's not distant. There's no sense of of indifference with it. Sometimes people worry that it's pointing to some kind of insensitivity or apathy or not caring or indifference where we're not feeling things. But equanimity doesn't have these qualities in any way. We're still right, touching experience very directly, but but there's a quality of not having preference with it. We're totally present, but we're not pushed around or pulled around by our experience. And there's a great relief with this. Said that one of the functions of this factor of equanimity, of upeka is to fill in where there is lack and to reduce or remove where there is excess. It brings things to balance, to the center, filling in what isn't there and removing what's there in too much quantity. And so when it is strong, there's this incredible feeling of balance in the mind. And we can feel like we don't have to make any effort. Our practice is doing itself. We don't have to try to be mindful. And this is part of the way it manifests feels like the mindfulness is doing itself and it's taking care of everything else. In one place, it's likened to someone who's driving a carriage that's pulled by horses and they just settle back and they let the horses do the work. And it's this balance, this incredible balance of equanimity when it's strong and when it's fully developed that prepares the mind to realize the unconditioned. You could say in a way that fully developed equanimity is is a fruit of these seven factors. And in the model of the stages of insight, the progressive stages of insight, equanimity at this stage is called sankharupeka this equanimity with regard to formations. It's a kind of perfect equipoise in the mind and the heart. I think of it in that lovely line that Joseph read the other night about the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment. It said that he's assailed by the armies of Mara and the great being's mind was not moved. This is this perfect balance of highly developed equanimity There's a way that we can look at our practice and see it as a, as a process of cultivating a taste for these wholesome factors of awakening. And in, the, in another way, we are diminishing our conditioned taste for the kilesas. And we begin to see more and more through this mistaken view that the, the kilesas could be a source for happiness We see how a life of chasing after sense pleasures or trying to fight against or flee from what's unpleasant, what we don't like, and zoning out in between these things is, is a really a hopeless and endless and ultimately exhausting pursuit. And this is really a powerful shift in our consciousness. It's worth paying attention and noticing this. Because our conditioning is so strong, and the conditioning of our culture is so strong to pursue sense pleasures as a way of finding happiness. And it's a, really, it's a very radical shift in our understanding to, to let go of this. But as our wisdom and understanding grow, and as they deepen, there's a natural shift that happens. And we see more and more clearly, very directly, the flaws in pursuing these kilesas as a strategy for happiness. So we start to lose our taste for this. And then we're naturally inclined towards the development of the, the more subtle but more ultimately more satisfying happiness that arises from the factors of awakening. We begin to touch directly how they lead to this liberation of mind. So again, these are the words of the Buddha. Bhikkhus, these seven factors of enlightenment, when developed and cultivated, lead to going beyond from the near shore to the far shore. And having said this, the fortunate one, the teacher, further said this. Few are those among humankind who go beyond to the far shore. The rest merely run up and down along the bank. When the Dhamma is rightly expounded, those who practice in accord with the Dhamma are the ones who will go beyond the realm of death so hard to cross. Having left behind the dark qualities, the wise person should develop the bright ones having come from home into homelessness where it is hard to take delight. There, in seclusion, one should seek delight, having left behind the pursuit of sensual pleasures. Owning nothing, the wise person should cleanse himself of mental afflictions. Those whose minds are well-developed in the factors of enlightenment, who through non-clinging find delight in the relinquishment of grasping are the luminous ones with taints destroyed, fully quenched in the world. So we'll just have a few moments of quiet and let the words drift away. And then I'll ring the bell and we'll chant the verses of sharing together.